brothers that have been leading us in worship. I think you, you'll agree with me that they put a lot of time and effort and thought into it and, it, and it shows. We are led well by you. Thank you very much. Please uh, take your scriptures and open with them to chapter 14 of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses there this morning. There's probably about a third of you looking around, maybe, maybe more than a third. A third of you that can answer the question, where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? Maybe more than a third. When certain people die, there's a moment of pause that happens. When a significant person dies, there's pause. Maybe it's not... JFK, maybe for you it was Martin Luther King Jr. You remember that vividly. Or, or maybe as we go up in the generations, it, it, it might be John Lennon. Where were you when you heard that John Lennon was assassinated? If you keep going up in the generations, I, I, I certainly remember when I, I heard about the seven astronauts dying in the Challenger explosion. I, I remember vividly where I was. I remember the color of the bridge that I was, I was going over when I heard it on the radio. Or maybe for, as, we, as we continue to go up in the generations, maybe it's uh, Lady Diana, Princess Diana, where the world seemed to just stop for that week. The point is, when, a, when an important person dies, important in whatever context, there seems to be a pause. People seem to stop for a while. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing as, as he continues to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. He gets to the point where what, who Jesus describes as the greatest man born of woman, John the Baptist, dies. And he pauses. That's what our text is about this morning. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. And there God's word says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and he had John beheaded in prison. And his death was brought, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Holy Spirit, I ask that you proceed and I recede as I preach your word this morning. Lord, speak to your people. Love them, care for them through your word. Encourage them and challenge them through your word. Use your word powerfully in all of our lives. You have ordained that the word of God be preached and there is power there. Change your people. Change me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we have a flashback of the death of John the Baptist. Jesus' fame is growing. We're practically at the, at the peak of his fame, of his popularity in the Gospel of Matthew. And Herod hears of him. And he tells his servants that he believes that this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's kind of an odd thing to think of. It's an odd thing for your mind to gravitate towards when you hear something like that, when you're thinking of another person. It's kind of made me pause this week. Why would Herod's mind go there? Well, it certainly gives evidence that that he's a, a spiritual thinking man, right? Most people today, when you when you talk to them about resurrection, don't even give it a second thought. So he's a a spiritually thinking man. But I think it also gives evidence that he's a conflicted man. Kind of like Macbeth when he sees Banquo's ghost in, in the play Macbeth. Banquo, who he has killed, he's, he's feeling guilty about that. So his mind is, is playing tricks on him. Herod obviously is feeling some guilt for putting John the Baptist to death. And so what Matthew does is he gives us a flashback to the circumstances surrounding John's death. And he does that to allow us a window, if you will, into Herod's heart. He does that to give us a window into Herod's heart. As I said last week, as I, as I wrapped up the kingdom uh, parables in Matthew 13, these next few chapters are the working out of those kingdom principles. Through eight encounters, those kingdom principles are going to be tested and worked out so that we can understand how this kingdom works. How this upside-down kingdom actually functions between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And here we have the second encounter with Herod. Last week we encountered the hard soil, the parable of the soils, the hard soil of Nazareth, the people of Nazareth. Here, 
This week, there are two other kingdom principles at work here. In the first, in the, in, in first we want to look at the first kingdom principle, which is the seed that falls on weedy soil. The seed that falls on weedy soil. The parable of the soils. If you remember that, Jesus describes a seed as the word of God that falls among thorns or weeds back in chapter 13. And though the the seed begins to grow, the, the weeds grow up next to it and choke out the seed. He explains it like this to his disciples in verse 22 of chapter 13. Jesus says, As for what is sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of sin choke it and it proves unfruitful. This describes Herod the Tetrarch. He is a man that has a weedy heart. Herod was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, we meet in Luke. He was the one who killed the innocents. When Herod the Great died, he divided his huge kingdom into four parts, and his sons got each each part. And one of his sons, Antipas, the Herod here, got the territory west of the Sea of Galilee. The whole house of Herod, if you if you care to do a study of it, is is an evil family evil family. They were kings that were installed by Rome. They cared little for the Jewish people or the Jewish law. They were mean, selfish, greedy, lustful, power-hungry, self-absorbed family. And Herod Antipas here, the Tetrarch, is, is no different. Truly, the apple did not fall far from the tree. As is implied here in verse 3, and is explained in the parallel passage in Mark, Herod fell in love with his brother's wife, his brother Philip's wife. And they both divorced their spouses and married each other. And John the Baptist is condemning that relationship, not just for the adultery that it represents, but also Herodias was was his half-sister. So there's incest. And that's what prompts John repeatedly as Herod would go out to listen to him to say, it is not lawful for you to have that wife. And so Herod rather reluctantly imprisons and kills John because of the pressures of his wife. Now, it's really interesting. When you read about Herod Antipas, it, it, it's, it's, he's a confusing man to try and get your hands around, if you will. If you've ever watched the, the movies that portray Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and King of Kings, and all those other, other movies, you see this confusion in how they portray Herod. Some kind of sympathetically, some portray him evilly only, but scripture really presents Herod as a conflicted man here. We see in Mark 6 this description of Herod. 
It says, Now Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, the scripture says, yet liked to listen to him. That's really interesting, isn't it? John condemns Herod's relationship, and yet he protects him. John calls him an adulterer to his face multiple times, and yet Herod liked to listen to him. And when he did, Mark says, he was puzzled. Herod was puzzled. That word translated puzzled, according to Strong's, means to be at a loss with oneself, to doubt, not to know or decide or know what to do. Herod was a confused man. On the one hand, he was this powerful tetrarch who could have anything he wanted, and he did. And on the other hand, he goes out to listen to John, and it seems like some seeds are making their way into his heart. John's preaching is starting to have an effect on Herod. And like in the parable, they begin to take root to such an extent that he's beginning to be conflicted. He's having doubt about his lifestyle. John's word created some doubt in his life. But here Herod had this weedy heart. Jesus describes these weeds, as I said, as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of sin. The cares of the world. Herod greatly cared about what the world thought of him. You see this in this text. Herod was, was, was a lustful man. He stole his brother's wife. And it is implied here, and in another text, that he was lusting after his daughter as she, as she danced. He was a self-absorbed man, throwing himself a lavish party. He was a power-hungry man. He didn't want to lose his place of honor among his peers. He would rather kill than lose his reputation. But most of all, I think what we see here is Herod was a fearful man. He was full of fear. He was full of the fear of man. If you look at verse 3, we see there that he had John jailed for the sake of Herodias, for the sake of his wife. Herodias hated John the Baptist and wanted him to die, was encouraging her husband to kill him and to jail him. And Herod was so afraid of his wife that he actually followed through with it and jailed him and eventually killed him. We see here in verse 5 that Herod feared the Jews. He feared what the Jews would think because the Jews held John the Baptist to be this amazing prophet, and he was. And what would happen if I killed their prophet? He was afraid of losing power and influence in his standing. And finally, in verse 9, we see that, that Herod feared losing his reputation. He feared what his peers would think of him so much if he broke his oath that he had John beheaded. 
what we see in Herod is fear of man. And brothers and sisters, fear of man is a deceptive weed in our heart. It's a hard one to see. It's one of the hardest ones to detect and pull out. Marshall Siegel of Desiring God writes, The fear of man often goes undiagnosed and unaddressed because of its subtlety. This fear knows how to wrap itself up in robes of love, pretending to count others more significant than itself, while secretly counting on others to fan the flame of their own deceit. Think about it for a second. When you fear man, it guides your life, doesn't it? It guides your life. It becomes the rudder of your life if you fear man. Fear of man will hold you back from speaking hard truth into a person's life. We are called to speak truth into each other's life. If you love your brother and sister, if when you see them falling, sliding, backsliding, you come to them and you talk to them in love. And fear of man will keep you from doing that. Because it wraps itself up in not wanting to hurt that person's feelings. Fear of man will keep you from sharing the hope you have within you. It will keep you from sharing Jesus. It will shut your mouth under the guise of not wanting to put, push your beliefs on anyone else. Sounds so noble, doesn't it? Fear of man will hold you back from committing to Jesus under the guise of maybe honoring your parents. I've shared Christ with one person who told me, I think that all sounds actually truthful, but I cannot commit because my father is Jewish. And he would, he would never understand. Lord Kenneth Clark is best known for his television series called Civilization. He lived and died an irreligious man without faith in Jesus Christ as far as we know. However, he admitted in his autobiography that while visiting a beautiful church, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience as he describes it. He writes, My whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. But the flood of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. And his family might think he had lost his mind. So you know, he wrote, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change my course. How tragic. And that's the evidence of a weedy heart right there. And it describes Herod to a T. The world was too deeply embedded in Herod. He cared too much about what the world thought of him to change his course. The weeds of the cares of the world choked out that seed. And we, as we as Christians, brothers and sisters, we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant that the cares of the world do not get planted in our hearts. 
Weeds are dangerous. Those kinds of weeds are so dangerous to leave unattended. That's why we have to be diligent to weed our hearts. To weed our hearts. To my own dismay, I have discovered over the last 20 years that I am a terrible gardener. Uh, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, I built that raised garden between our driveway and our in the parking lot with high hopes. I thought, you know, it would be great. We can plant this as a family and we can, we can watch them grow and go out. You know, you, you kind of get nostalgic about this and the kids will go out and we'll do the gardening together and we'll pick the squash together. This will be great. You know, young, exuberant father. But I found that I just hate weeding. I hate it. I mean, I walk past the garden to get home. Okay? And I look at it and I see the weeds and I still go inside. I've made plans. I say, we're going to go out, guys, and you know this. We're going to go out and we're just going to spend five minutes weeding. Five minutes a day we can take care of this. And that drops off. I hate weeding. And as a result, my garden suffers. It suffers. I once read a statistic that if you leave gardens unattended and weeds get in there and you don't deal with them, it can cut the harvest between 40 and 60%. Things still come up and give fruit, but far, far, far less than if you just took five minutes a day, Blake. I think that principle rings true spiritually. I think there's a real parallel there. Just as a physical garden needs attention on a consistent basis in order to be fruitful, our hearts need attention on a consistent basis in order for our lives to be spiritually fruitful. We need that five minutes, so to speak. And God's word tells us in no uncertain terms again and again and again to weed our own hearts. I was meditating on Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 this week. It's a wonderful verse. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. No doubt, I lean heavily into the sovereignty of God. And it's God who actually sanctifies us. It's through the Spirit's power that we actually become more like Christ. No doubt. I mean, even in the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul writes, He who began a good work in you, God, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God is going to do this in your life. However, you just can't read that and forget about the first half of the verse, can you? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Lord calls us to be aware of the weeds and to actively pull them out of our hearts. Let me ask you a question, just 
sticking with the metaphor. Are you familiar with the weeds that grow in your particular heart garden? If you just take a moment right now and go, what would three of those be? We all have weeds in our hearts. Nobody here is Jesus Christ. What would just three of those be? Is it the weed of worldly ambition? Perhaps it's the weed of of comfort and convenience. You know what comfort and convenience will do? It'll choke out your sacrifice for God. Is it the weed of reputation? As we talked about earlier, one of the things that'll do is choke out your witness. People won't even know you're a Christian. What about the weed of spouse or family idolatry? If you've got that weed, your intimacy with God is going to be cut. What about the weed of pleasure? It'll choke out holiness. What about the weed of fear and worry? The weed of bitterness and resentment? You know what the weed of bitterness and resentment does? (laughs) It chokes out your love for God's church. Not the weed of anger. The weed of self-pity and martyrdom. Jesus tells us that it is not the outside that makes us holy, but it's what proceeds from the inside, isn't it? It's what proceeds from the heart. So our hearts need attention. Our hearts need weeding. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? It's a good challenge, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we have to be willing and open to destroy a piece of our heart, to pull out those weeds. I want to give you three quick ways to pull weeds in your own heart. First, be open to hearing others speak truth and love to you. Be open to having others, be open and willing to have others speak truth into your life. Ephesians 4.15, our memory verse from several years ago, says to speak truth in love to each other. In 2 Samuel 12, we have that happening when King David was guilty of murder and and adultery and you had the prophet Nathan come into him and uh, confront him. And David was open and willing to hear that. That was a heavy truth. Imagine if Herod was really willing and open to hearing John the Baptist. Secondly, we have to be open 
and willing to the challenges of God's word, not just people, but more primarily to God's word. I recently downloaded an app on my phone called Weed ID. This was spurred on not by this sermon, but it was actually spurred on by my wife. She took me out into the front of our garden and pointed at a flower, a single flower that was blooming. And she said, do you know what? I said, what? She said, I've waited 18 years for that flower to bloom. I said, what do you mean, honey? She says, all these years, I thought that that was a weed, but it was a really pretty weed, so I didn't pull it. And here it is, a flowering plant, and I didn't know it. So later that day, I pulled out my, my iPhone, and I went to my app, and I, and I went around the yard taking pictures of things, and it was telling me, good plant, good plant, bad plant, bad plant, good plant, bad plant. God has actually given us uh, an app. It's called the Holy Bible. And all we have to do is, is open it up for five minutes a day and read it. And you know what it does? It takes a snapshot of your heart. It takes a picture. And then, it, like in the app, maybe there's that little pause, and then it pops up. Good fruit, Blake. Keep going. Worldly ambition, Blake. Be careful. Weed it. Part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling is engaging in that kind of battle. Actually opening your scripture and allowing it, wanting it, inviting it to take a snapshot of your heart. Thirdly, we also have to be open to listening to our consciences. We have to be open to listening to our consciences. Our conscience is God-given internal apparatus that helps us determine what is good and what is evil. Every person is given this. John Puritan, the Puritan John Flavel describes it as God's spy and man's overseer. It is a conduit through which the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Let me say that again. It is the conduit through which the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Do you want the Holy Spirit to speak to you? You have to start listening to your conscience. Now we have to be careful. Because our conscience, the word says, can be seared. We can, be, we can sin so, so much in a certain area that we become insensitive to it. The scripture also tells us in Titus that our, scripture, our, our conscience can, can become defiled. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that you start allowing the world into your heart. You start allowing the worldly principles into your heart to take root. Then you get a confused conscience. You go, is that good or bad? I don't know. Is critical race theory good or bad? I don't know. And then we also have a weak conscience. And a weak conscience is, is an uninformed conscience. See, the conscience works by knowing the word of God. God is preeminently organized. As you know the word of God, your conscience becomes stronger. Because the Holy Spirit can speak to you through the word of God. 
So we must be diligent to weed our conscience so that it can guide us, so that we can hear the Spirit's voice. Do you want to hear God's voice in your life? I think we all do. We all go, yeah, Pastor, I want to hear God's voice. And weed your heart. And your conscience will be strong. The Spirit can speak to you through that. Lastly, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, there's a second kingdom principle here at work, and that is the hidden kingdom in the weeds. So we've looked at Herod's heart, but we also have to kind of dial back and see that the truth of the kingdom principle of the weeds. Jesus likened the kingdom of God between his comings as wheat growing among weeds or tares in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And there he tells us that his kingdom will be obscured from view, if you remember when I preached on that. It'll be kind of hidden. You'll, you'll have wheat, but the tares are growing up and they look very similar. And so we can't really delineate a lot of times. The weeds will make the kingdom hard to see, hard to detect. And that's certainly the picture presented here, isn't it? If we just look at those 13 verses, look at who is in control. It's Herod. It's the world. They're partying. And look at John. He's hidden away from view. He's down in the dungeon. Weak position. Captured. That's what the kingdom often looks like now. Just look, just look at how our culture is, is careening right now. It does not look like the kingdom of God, does it? It doesn't look like that now. And brothers and sisters, we can't expect it to look like heaven now. I think there's a lot of disappointment a lot of kind of a giving up spirit in the evangelical community now because of what's going on. We go, gosh, how can this be? How can we allow the systematic genocide of our babies? How can we allow transgender to, to take over? How can we allow... Same-sex marriages. How can we allow... The list goes on and on and on. Where's the kingdom? Brothers and sisters, I don't think that we should give up. But I also don't think that we should expect it to be heaven on earth. John the Baptist was beheaded. That's kind of what the kingdom looks like now. It's obscure. It's hidden. He gets beheaded while Herod eats grapes. Look at verse 13. Here we see the weeds of the world holding all the cards while Jesus withdraws to a desolate place by himself. What picture is Matthew painting here? The picture Matthew is painting is that God's kingdom seems weak, seems withdrawn, seems defeated. Maybe even like Nietzsche, seems dead. 
And that's what we need to kind of expect between Christ's comings. Rome crushed Christianity in the first 300 years through persecutions. Where was the kingdom of God in the Dark Ages? Where was the kingdom of God before the Reformation? Where's the kingdom of God now? The kingdom always appears weak and hidden between Christ's comings. Where's the hope? I don't know if you guys are Avenger movies fans, but I want to describe the end of the third Avenger movie. There's a scene in that right at the end of Infinity Wars where evil Thanos has collected all the Infinity Stones and and he has defeated the Avengers and he snaps his fingers and does whatever he wants and what he wanted was half the population of the universe to be wiped out. So he snaps his fingers and if you see in the movie you start seeing all these people begin to just fade away into ash. Fade away, fade away. As the leader of Avengers, Nick Fury, gets out of his car in New York City and he looks, starts looking at all these people dissolving. And then he looks down and he, he sees himself starting to dissolve. So he takes out of his pocket something that we don't see. And as he dissolves and fades, it drops to the ground. And the camera zooms in. And it's this strange symbol blinking. He's called someone. We don't know who it is. Then the movie ends. Evil seems to have won. Yet we're left with a little glimmer of hope. Brothers and sisters, what's the glimmer of hope that we have? What did Jesus leave us to remind us You're not defeated. Brothers and sisters, what did he leave us so that we could remember that although it seems lost now, don't worry, the story's not over. What did he leave us? He left us him. A symbol of him. He left us communion. He left us the Lord's Supper. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 11.26, he says, Do this in remembrance of me until I return. Now, there's a lot of symbolism that's wrapped up in what we're about to do. There's a lot. It should give us confidence that we are forgiven. When, when we see this table, it should give us confidence that the power of sin, which is death, is broken in your life. It should give us confidence that we, although we appear weak, we're not weak. And what I want us to focus on today is this table gives us confidence That Christ is coming back. That the story is not told. That it's not over. That we do have a hope. 
in this world. So as I invite the elders up, I want to encourage us to concentrate on the fact that although the kingdom looks weak and hidden now, I want us to focus on Christ is coming back in glory. Christ is coming back. I think that's one of the reasons that he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat this bread. Because this bread is my body that is broken for you. I will take, I will absorb the penalty of sin that you deserve in my body.